Thank unions, it's Friday. Welcome to On The Line, I'm Hussein. And I'm Rachel. On The Line is a show to highlight a real people's history and struggle-oriented perspective of what's happening on the ground in workplaces and sectors across the United States. Whether we're on the assembly line, on the phone line, or on the picket line, you'll always find us on the line. Today, we'll be talking about the unprecedented level of support for unions among young people in the U.S. and why it is that this generation is now turning to unions as a way to organize and fight for a better life. We'll also be talking with Richard Hooker, the principal officer of Teamsters Union Local 623 out of Philadelphia, to talk with us about some of the biggest labor fights over this past year, including SAG-AFTRA, taking on Hollywood, the UAW striking at the big three, and of course, we'll be getting into his own union's fight with UPS. But first, I'll pass it over to Hussein for This Week in Labor History. On On the Line, we look to history for education, motivation, and inspiration for the fights ahead. With the turn of the new year, we have some especially exciting facts for you all this week in labor history. On this day, December 29th, two major events took place. First, in 1970, the Occupational Safety and Health Act was passed, which created OSHA. This came after a massive push by the labor movement to get safety and health regulations implemented in the workplace. Today, unfortunately, major budget cuts have left OSHA's enforcement fairly weak. Employers tend to just treat the costs associated with workplace violations as the cost of doing business. But that doesn't stop workers from fighting for these protections on the job through their unions. Also on this day in 2006, more than 15,000 members of the United Steelworkers Union at 16 Goodyear Tire and Rubber Plants ended an 86-day strike and ratified a three-year contract with major wage and benefit gains. And on January 1st, workers' revolution was really in the air. Three major events took place. In 1804, the first successful revolution of enslaved laborers resulted in the overturning of slavery and the first free black republic in Haiti. Following this victory, slavery fell in countries across the Caribbean, Latin America, and ultimately the United States of America. Which brings us to 1863, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed. And on the line, we know that it wasn't Abraham Lincoln who ended slavery, it was the enslaved workers who fought to win the end of slavery, ultimately culminating in a victory in the Civil War. January 1st, 1959, also marks the victory of the Cuban Revolution, when workers overthrew the U.S.-backed dictatorship and reorganized society based on the needs of their people and the planet, rather than profits for the few. And on the line, we'll keep looking to the past to fight for our future. Now, let's get into it. So this has obviously been, you know, 2023, a big year for the labor movement. And I think we and many other people would consider it to be potentially the start of a new era for, for the labor movement. We, we saw major fights in a way that we haven't seen in, in many years, um, large strikes, not just uh, hundreds of small job actions, which was the case in 2022 and 2021, but um, many strikes that were uh, captured national attention, right? There was UPS, the near strike uh, of UPS that culminated in a massive victory uh, before contract expiration on August 1st. There was the SAG-AFTRA strike. I remember when we were in Philadelphia at the practice picket when mm-hmm. Fran Drescher announced that. Uh, the I think the quote she used was, the, gate of, uh, the gates of Versailles uh, are going to fall one day uh, when we mm-hmm. just have to make it fall. So over 150,000 act, actors, actresses, performers in Hollywood struck, over 11,000 writers with the WGA struck, both at the same time for the first time in 48 years. Uh, over 46,000 auto workers struck with the UAW and won massive, massive gains. Um, in their nearly five-year contract and have now pivoted to a massive new organizing campaign Mm -hmm. that's largely concentrated in the South. Um, And now we're 
looking uh, forward to 2024, and there's already so many major fights that are on the docket, including hotel workers across the country um, with Unite Here, the ILA on the East Coast ports, um, and even the, the strikes that um, would have otherwise been the center of national attention in previous years, in, in the last decade even, were sort of blips in the radar. 75,000 Kaiser workers went on strike uh, for, mm-hmm. I think it was two or three days um, late this year. It didn't reach that, didn't have that much attention just because labor was on fire. It, it almost felt like everyone and their moms was on strike in 2023. Right. Right, um, right. Hotel workers were on strike, on a rolling strike in Los Angeles. Um, LA school support staff uh, were on strike with SEIU local 90, SEIU local 99. Um, and all of them, it's not just the fact that these workers went on strike, but they won. Um, right. And that obviously has had a huge impact on so many people who are in the labor movement and who are also outside of the labor movement. But we're so honored, Richard, to have you on the show. Um, Richard, for those who don't know, is the principal op- officer of the Teamsters Local 623 in Philadelphia, one of the central leaders of the UPS fight in Philadelphia, um, the the fight of so many thousands of Teamsters in Philly, the site of the second largest air hub in the country uh, against this massive shipping and logistics uh, conglomerate, UPS. Um, and we're, we're excited to talk to you about one of the the largest fights and perhaps the one that was first being followed that that marked the start of the start of the new era in 2023. So thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, Richard. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And, you know, we saw it in the, the national spotlight all over the news. One of these major fights of the last year was one between 340,000 Teamsters and UPS, you know, between uh, the people who sort and load the packages in the warehouses, the truck drivers, the package car drivers, all the people who actually make the operation run, um, and the corporate heads who really don't do anything at all, but somehow are making all the profits. And as Hussein said, Richard, you were a leader in this fight in Philadelphia. So can you tell us about some of the key issues uh, that drove the struggle at UPS? Well, the one of the, the biggest issues, were, of course, was the, the, the battle for part-time pay. And then I would also say that it was just about the, the way that the company treats our members day in and day out the harassment, the retaliation, the intimidation, all those factors were were a big, big part into why 97% of the membership voted to go on strike if need be. Just think about that. 97% people say, you know what, man, I'm tired of the way UPS is treating me. I'm tired of the way they're treating, you know, um, my family, community. You know, we go to work. Safety is an issue. Being paid on time is an issue. Um, you know what? We're going to take this company on the street. And that right there is, is really, I believe, put them on notice that, you know what? <laughs> we may have some issues here. We may have some problems here if we don't get this thing together. Right. Because, again, 97% of the people wanted to go on strike. And, you know, one of the the things that I think contributed most to the fact that this fight was at the front page, especially as it was, um, as we were getting closer to August 1st, it was at the top of mind of not only UPS executives, but of workers really all across the country is the fact that over 340,000 UPS workers are covered by the same national agreement. It's not one of those companies that's concentrated in a particular region, in a particular state, or even a particular workplace, but UPS delivers everywhere, Uh, regardless of whether you're in Hawaii or uh, Alaska even, or in Houston or Philadelphia or Los Angeles, UPS delivers there. Package car drivers deliver there, go, you know, work super hard. There's a warehouse that's within some small radius of where you live, where workers are sorting, loading, unloading packages. And 
there there are not that many national contracts that I'm aware of um, that exist in the same way that that it does for for UPS um, that covers so many hundreds of thousands of workers across the country. What sort of effect do you think that had on um, on the fight? It was I mean, it had a big effect because, like you said, you're talking about three hundred and forty thousand people who are covered in a national agreement. That's that's a lot of people. You know, and that's a lot of power and a lot of leverage, um, especially when you're talking about the second largest air hub in Philly. The largest air hub is in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and then you talk about uh, Chicago land. They have the largest ground hub. And then New York City, um, just in size in itself, you talk about eight million people and they have about 17 UPS buildings mm-hmm. there in the city. Uh, so that's a lot of leverage in a lot of places where there's a lot of people. And, you know, uh, the fact that that contract covers that many people, UPS, um, they they have to be careful about how they negotiate with that many people. Right. And the teamsters also have to be careful on how to negotiate with that many people because you have different areas, have different things because, of course, we do have our regional contracts up under mm-hmm. the UPS national contract. Like here in, in, in Philadelphia, we have our own Philadelphia 623 supplement that's different from a lot of places and other places have different issues than we have here. So this was really a, a very, you know, uh, it's like a puzzle, a big puzzle. Because you have different regions and then you have the national. And um, to have that much leverage, especially coming out of COVID, and we saw that, you know, the world depended on delivery drivers and warehouse workers. Um, going into that negotiations with that, with that amount of people, it gave us really a head up on negotiations. Because we we just showed the, the country how important mm. The delivery driver is, mm-hmm. the warehouse worker is. I mean, because everybody was sitting at home delivering everything or ordering everything. Who, who was delivering it? UPS workers, Amazon workers, right? And when we went into negotiations, we knew that. And we, we were going to make sure that the, the, the country knew that, listen, you cannot make it without 340,000 workers. Because we just proved that to you about a year ago. Everything was shut down. If you wanted to get your COVID vaccine, who delivered it? If you wanted to get your pampers for your baby, who delivered it? Groceries, you know, um, clothes, whatever the case may be, who delivered it? It was the worker. So we, we, we knew the power that we had. We knew how, how, how powerful 340,000 workers moving toward the same thing. You know, we know how that looked like, and we just had to show the company that as well. I mean, speaking about, excuse me, speaking about leverage, every single chamber of commerce across the country, in every state, every major city, and then, of course, the National Chamber of Commerce, I'm sure you remember, it's like yeah. two or three weeks before the TA was reached, signed a letter uh, urging President Biden to intervene in a potential strike to intervene and try to settle this thing. And, you know, usually when the president intervenes, it's not on the side of the workers and their union, but on the side of the company. In the case, we saw it uh, of the of the rail workers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's essentially these chamber for people who, who aren't aware. These chambers of commerce, commerces are, are essentially a an association of the richest people in that area who come together, who lead these big corporations and collude on how to most effectively exploit people. Right. And mm-hmm. so all these people came together and they seemed, if you read the letter, it's so desperate. I want to read a quote. UPS is a vital lifeline for America, moving between 5 and 6% of U.S. GDP or $3.8 billion in goods per day. Parcels delivered by UPS include cancer screening tests, semiconductor chips, baby formula, back-to-school kits, critical parts for agricultural construction and telecommunications equipment, and the everyday supplies needed to keep thousands of small businesses running. 
And mm. it's not like they came to these ultra rich people who own everything and do nothing came to this realization in 2023. In fact, they knew it in 2018 and 2013 before that mm -hmm. uh, in negotiations. They know the power that workers have. It seems like 2023 is the year that workers are coming to the realization about the enormous power they have and how to leverage it to win big. You're right. And I, and I think what happened for the worker to make them realize that was the, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, everybody depended on the worker, no matter what industry you were in, you depended on the workers. Um, there's this there's this commercial that um, Dunkin' Donuts has this saying that says that um, America runs on Dunkin'. But <laughs> right. it doesn't. It runs on the worker. Mm -hmm. And we proved that over and over and over, especially during the pandemic. All that stuff you just read, $3.8 billion a day? Come on. <laughs> That's crazy. And 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 all of a sudden I think what happened is that workers, whether you're in the union or not, they realize that, man, you know what, man, what would happen if we just keep our hands in our pockets? If you want that $3.8 billion, you're going to have to pay for it. You're going to have to give us the contracts that we want. You're going to have to start treating us like we're human beings. You're going to have to make sure that we have a pension and we have health care, right? Um and, and I'm and I'm still mad. I'll go ahead and say it. I'm still mad that we didn't go on strike. Yeah. Because I believe that, you know, and in, in, in especially dealing with UPS, the only way, the only way you're going to be the company like UPS, and I hate to say this, they're going to have to see how it feels mm. to be treated like they treat us. That's the only way they're going to understand. And that's Elon Musk, the Carol Tomei's, all these people, the Jeff Bezos, they're going to have to start feeling this, 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 this pain, this frustration that an everyday worker goes through. A strike, they would have got to see that pain, especially in dealing with UPS, working in the hot trucks, people passing out and dying, um, working in the warehouse, people passing out and dying. I, I, I said it at a rally. The Chesapeake uh, District president was in Oregon mm -hmm. Avenue. And, and I called her out by name. I said, I would like to see her in the truck, 150 degrees in the back of the truck, trying to get a package. I want to see that. I want to I want them to, to realize how they could just go in and try to take somebody's livelihood because they went to go get rest because they were so dehydrated from the heat. I want them to, to, to feel that because at a certain point, and this is just the way I feel, I don't think that the, the labor movement will actually be able to win anything unless there is a strike, a work stoppage, a general strike. These corporations need to know how it feels to have that $3.8 billion you just talked about a day. They need to see that going. Then they will realize, man, you know what, man, we need to start treating our members, our workers, a lot differently because again if they put their hands in their pockets that 3.8 billion dollars goes away and that's why and if you talk to our members they're frustrated too that we didn't go on strike because of how ups treats our members you know the only way to beat a bully man you got to punch it right in the mouth and ups to this day they still deserve to be punched in the mouth because it hasn't happened yet and until that happens we're going to be still having these conversations. A member's still going to be upset, but they need to be punched in the mouth. Not, er not just every five years, but every single day they do. I'm telling you, they will change. If they had to go through the stuff that our members go through, they would change. Right. And I think we've established, you know, that UPS is not a company that's just going to give in, to things based on their own goodwill. Will. This took a major fight for workers yes. to assert their power and demand, you know, show up to the table and demand this is what we deserve. Um, and it seems like, you know, coming into the peak season, they're back on their antics, right? What's been going oh, yeah. on in Philadelphia now? And, and I guess what's what's next in the fights ahead for the Teamsters in, in Philly? So 
to go back to what you just said about you know UPS, their container and antics, and they're not going to stop. They're not, um, especially now. You're talking about um, having to pay members uh, over seven dollars um, in five years. They've never had to uh, a wage increase like that. And UPS is very vindictive, very vindictive. If you come, if you get one up on them, they're going to try to take as much as they can from you. Um, and they're very good at that because um, UPS, you know, like the, the first letter in, in the name, U, they're very <laughs> united, very united. Um, from the CEO all the way down to the part-time soup, um, they have one mission and one goal. It has nothing to do with making sure the customer get their packages. Right. They want to make sure that they cause as much harm to the workforce and to get the workforce mad at each other, divide and conquer. That's what they're great at. Forget the logistics. Forget the delivery. They're not even number one at that no more. Right now, it's, I believe it was Amazon and FedEx and then them. For decades, it was always UPS was number one. Not anymore. But they're still number one at divide and conquer the workforce. They are very, very good at that. And, and we always fall into that trap of fighting each other instead of fighting the employers. But I think this time around, I think what has happened was against the, the push from the pandemic and the fact that, you know, a lot of younger workers too, it's not like when I first started, you know what I mean? These young workers, man, they're just not going to take stuff off anybody you know what i mean you know if you look at the chris smalls and the other people this is a different generation man they're just not going to sit back and just let you just do what you want to do say what you want to say man you know what i mean and and i think that's why our members want to really go on strike because there's a lot of younger members there man and they're just not used to just sitting back taking it this is not generations of the 60s the 50s and 60s and 70s where okay we're gonna keep our hand down you know we're gonna pray about it. ain't nothing wrong with praying <laughs> but at a certain point, man, you gotta, you know, uh, you gotta, you gotta do what you gotta do. Mm-hmm. And and I think this 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 generation, they're all about, you know, that smoke that, that the young people say. You know what I mean? They want it. Yes, they sir. look for it. They look for it. And and I think UPS need to be very very careful because man, our membership is getting younger and younger, and our our members are not going to take this disrespect. And you saw that. And, you know, um, that's that's what we're going to have to continue to build up on our younger members. Keep teaching them about um, the union ways. Nothing wrong with how, how it used to be done. But I think what we have to do as a union and we have a hard time with doing that is changing to incorporate this new ideas of the younger generation, the TikTok, the Facebook, the Instagram you know, back in the, you know, back in those days, man, that wasn't a, a thing. And now this thing is blowing up to the point where, you know, some of our older members, man, they don't want to get down with that. The leadership doesn't want to get down with that. But I think if you look at what these employers are doing, they're doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at if you look at UPS's uh, in, internal management. Especially in 623's jurisdiction, it is re- it is reflective of the members. My membership is about seventy five percent minority. If you look at the the the, the uh, frontline supervisors, management, they look like me. That was done by design, right? But if you look at if you look at the overall leadership of a lot of locals and unions. It's not reflective. So there is a generational and a cultural gap when you talk about how we can go after these members and get them more organized. Those members don't see themselves in the leadership. They don't see themselves in the fight. So it's hard. It was a lot easier for us because we're reflective of our membership. Somebody made a comment saying that UPS uses the contract as a sword Mm -hmm. and the union uses it as a shield. So that that shows you that it's always it's always going to be a everyday fight, every single day. It's not an every five year fight or every three year year fight. It's an everyday fight, and our members have to understand that that it's an everyday fight. You have to show up 
you know, file these grievances, show up to the rally, show up to the job actions. Don't be afraid. You're protected under, you know, the NLRA for things. And 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 UPS uses fear. Again, the number one thing isn't logistics. It's, it's fear. It's retaliation. It's control. If they can get people to be afraid of them, then they've won. They don't want active membership. They don't want to have you come out to your union meetings. They don't want you to participate in the filing grievances. They don't want you to have um, rallies. They're complaining right now about a rally that we're going to have on January the 12th. They told one of my business agents, well, why are you guys going to have this rally? You, you got Martin Luther King Day. It's not about Martin Luther King Day as a holiday, as a paid holiday. It's what he means to civil rights and labor rights. You still disrespecting our workers. That's why we're having the rally. You still can't pay our members on time. That's why we're having the rally. You still you you still firing people for nothing. That's why we're having the rally. You still retaliating, harassing them. That's why we're having the rally. And so we still have to do those things to show them that, yeah, we got the holiday, but it wasn't about a paid holiday. It's about what it means to have dignity on the job, safety on the job, having a pension having health care. That's what this is about. It's not about the holiday per se. It's about what Martin Luther King means to the labor movement and the civil rights movement. Because UPS violates workers every single day. That's why we got to have this rally on January the 12th. So anybody out there that's going to listen to this, if you're in the Philadelphia area, January the 12th at Oregon Avenue, 7.30 a.m., we're going to be out there we're going to be out there punching a bully in the mouth, man. That's what we're going to be doing. So if you want to come help us land some blows, please come on out. All right. So, yeah, that's what we got to continue to do, man. We're going to continue to do. Keep pushing them because Hassan and, and sis, I'm sorry. What, what is your name? Again? Rachel. I'm sorry. Rachel. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, so um, Rachel Hassan, man, you know, we got to keep got to keep fighting. Got to keep pushing. Um you know, Fred Hampton, anywhere there's people, there's power. Talk right? about it. Everything would be all right if, if everything was given back to the people. And I believe that. I believe that. And that's what we got to do as a union. We got to give everything back over to them and show them that they can win against these employers. We have to because they can. Especially in a company like UPS, because UPS doesn't manufacture anything. They don't make anything. They don't provide anything. You can't go to the store and pick up something that UPS made or, or they manufactured. We provide everything that UPS has. Everything. Our labor gives them all those record-breaking profits. If we don't show up, they don't have anything. Zero. There's zero profit for zero labor if we don't show up to work. And that's what I try to get our members to understand. Don't let these guys bully and talk to you or put fear in your heart. Why? If everybody walks out the door, they don't have anything. So they should be afraid of you. <laughs> so we got to keep building on that. I think that's totally right. It's, uh, you know, the working class, we have numbers, but increasingly we have more organization. And I think that's been the the thing that's yeah. that's made 2023 like we said at the beginning the start of a new era for the labor movement <clears throat> people realizing well shoot it actually doesn't have to be the way it is we don't have to work crazy hours come home with too little pay and struggle every day to get by we can actually do something about it but it's not going to be done as an individual it's not going to be done no. by begging it's not going to be done through service it's not going to be done. Of course, like you said, there's nothing wrong with praying, but there can be yeah. a plan that's that's rooted in organization, that's proved to so many millions of workers through the UPS fight, through the auto fight, through the SAG fight, that if you're organized, you can be the most rich and powerful people in this country. And, you know, it's uh, it's like you said, it's just a start. But we have a long, long way to go. And the fact yeah. that there's this massive generation of young workers who are entering the workforce, who are hopeful, want to take action, who are pro-union in record numbers, it's, it's a historic opportunity for the labor movement to enter, enter that new era that marks 
a more fighting spirit for working yeah. class people across the country. Yeah, and, and I'm excited about it because when I first became a Teamster, man, I didn't really see a lot of fight from, you know, locals or just members in general. And a lot of it had to do with, you know, uh, attitude reflects leadership. If you're, if the leader don't has an attitude of fight or of planning or victory, then the members are not going to have that attitude either. And now that there's, there's a change with leadership, change in attitude, you're starting to see with, like you said in the beginning with the SAG-AFTRA, Teamsters and UPS, um, Kaiser Workers, um, and, and a lot of other small groups are organizing as well. Starbucks saw something with Trader Joe's and a lot of a lot of this movement is because, you know, uh, members know their power now. Um, and I, I think it's going to be led by uh, the next generation. I, I see it. Uh, and, and I think it's up to people like myself to make sure that the younger generation has the tools necessary to, to fight because I'm not going to be doing this job forever. I don't think I can, man. It's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. A lot of long days, man. But it's, it's, if you do it right, um, it's rewarding. Um, I think our members are very, very happy um, with with the outcome, especially with the raises, especially with the fight, especially with what we built as a foundation to build upon for future contracts. Um, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, I can't wait until, you know, we get to a point where it's, it's a little bit more level between the union and the corporations. You know, we still got a long way to go, but I think here soon, you know, uh, it's going to be level here. And I think we took a big chunk out of that this year. I know we did. Well, you heard the man January 12th. If you're in Philadelphia, turn out. In 2024, we are coming to get our power. We're coming to get our dignity and respect on the job. And as MLK said himself, we are coming to get our check. Richard, you thank go. you so much for coming on the line. It was great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Make sure I, I'm going to put, I'm going to use that. We're coming to get our check. Yes. That's going to be that's going to be the rally. That's a good that's quote. That's going to be the slogan yes. of the rally. I didn't know I'm out We're coming to get that. our checks. <laughs> there you go. Here on the line, you already know we love our unions. But yeah, very true. Yep. An overwhelming majority of Americans have long supported unions in poll after poll. Recently, though, we've seen youth support for the labor movement through the roof. While 69% of people aged 30 to 49 in the U.S. support unions and 67% of people over 50, these are already crazy statistics, mm -hmm. people under 30 in the U.S. make that look like nothing. Nearly 9 in 10 people, 88% of people under the age of 30 support unions. Honestly... <laughs> We need a clap for that. Young people are organizing and joining unions like there is no tomorrow. Hussein, why do you think it is that, you know, young people have such a positive view of unions right now? Like, what, is, what does that say about the state of the country? I was just thinking about Jaden Smith being like, what, what is really the state of society and stuff like that? For real? His name is Jaden Smith, right? Yes. Jaden Smith. Anyway, I mean, I really do think it's a, like two things in a sense. And... On the one hand, conditions for young people are just terrible. We we were talking the other day about what it would look like to plan to get a home. And that just not really being in the realm of possibility, I don't really know many people planning on that seriously. I don't know a single person. Not a single person. I know I'm not, but... I would like to. It's not that we don't right. want to. Uh, I think it's a marker of stability for a lot of people. Right. Um, but there are very few people who are under the age of 30 who can really think about that seriously, owning a home, having a mortgage, who aren't already s saddled with tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debt, credit card debt, healthcare debt, you name it. Right. Um, so a big part of it being just the conditions young people are faced with deteriorating for so many decades. Um, and then I think the other part is the fact that it can change and, and people seeing 
especially over the last year with these major fights that have captured public attention, been on the front page uh, so many times this year and these major uh, work stoppages, actors and actresses, performers in Hollywood, UPS workers, auto workers, and seeing them win big, young people are starting to realize, okay, well, shoot, our future may not have to be so bleak after all. Right. I think it's important to have a positive spin on it, too, because we could really talk for days about, you know, the economic conditions in this country really deteriorating, the future looking so bleak for young people. I mean, I saw this tweet, I think, earlier today that was like, um, I guess this woman who who rents, she was like, oh, my wash machine broke in the house. Um, my landlord, surprisingly, had a new one put in the next day. But if I owned a home, that w- I would never have been able to get a wash machine the next day. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, not to say that renting is so much greater than owning a home or whatever, but I think the way our society is set up too, it's like we have so much pressure on us to do these, to make these achievements, like buying a home and people either try to force themselves into it and they can't really afford it or they just don't do it. Right. And not being able to buy a wash machine if there's an emergency, it's like, yeah, because none of us have any savings. All of us are living on credit card debt right now. I mean, I mean, even go getting an ambulance. I remember the one time I've ever gotten transported, which I don't really want to get into that story because it's kind of wild, <laughs> but it was like $1,000 or more. Right. And so then you have this phenomenon of uh, Uber emergency or something. I, don't, I think it may have lasted for a very short period of time because there was sort of a PR That's rebellion crazy. against it. And so many people were like, wow, what the hell? You're like just leveraging people potentially just dying and they need to get no. to the hospital and they can't afford to call an ambulance. I think it just speaks to the to the gravity of the situation. Yeah, it's crazy. And like so many of us also were waiting on Joe Biden to cancel the student loan debt. That's literally the program that he ran on that he was going to cancel our debt. And to the day where all the things happening in the world right now, and I'm still receiving emails from the the loan financers. Mm-hmm. I don't even know who it is at this point. The, educa- the U.S. Education Department. <laughs> Saying your loans are overdue. Yeah, I know they're overdue. Where do you think I'm getting the money to do that, right? It's not happening. You know, it's tens and tens of thousands of dollars of debt that each individual has. And we're seeing at the same time, as you said, having the more positive spin on it, you know, at the same, like all the things, all these things happening at the same time, people are saying, wow, actually, like we can do something about this. Like, oh, these workers um, at the the warehouses are joining together and threatening or actually standing out on strike and they're getting raises from it. They're getting more dignity on the job. They're getting more respect. Like, oh, shoot, you know, maybe maybe we can all do that. We, we can fight for something different than than what, you know, these crumbs that mm-hmm. are being offered to us. It's pretty pitiful. No, it's true. And I think for young people, the the source of the issue in the state of society, whatever you want to call it, inflation, for how much ever bullshit is propagated in the mainstream media about the complexities of inflation and supply and demand and so on. And of course, that has something to do with it. But really, it's just price gouging. Right. And it's a company making a decision to increase prices to make more money. The source of or the enemy, if you want to call it, is very clear to young people. Tell us who it is. The vast majority of young people identify corporations and their desire to maximize profit as the source of inflation. Because it is. Because it is. Because it is. <laughs> so they, they realize the truth. They've, right. they've come to realize the truth. Um, and so they, they understand, they, one, the conditions are so bad. They understand who's responsible for those conditions, but that alone doesn't necessarily lead to major positive, transformative, or even uh, little by little slow change. In right. fact, it could just mean demoralization. Mm-hmm. You, it's like I'm sure we have all had that coworker at at your at at, uh, at work who every day just talks about how shitty it is. About all the problems, and then whenever you're talking about doing something to change it, 
they're like, I'm out of here. Everything's fine. Yeah. And so it's not enough to just identify the problem and and be affected negatively by the problem. You actually have to have the confidence and have a plan to address it. Um, right. Right. And I think many times, especially, I mean, young people, people in their 20s, their 30s, it's all about hustle culture. Everywhere you look, it's like, oh, yeah, things are tough, but... You just got to hustle. You just got to put your head down, get another job, whatever. And like, yeah, that's true. Like people really do. People really are in corners right now, like having to get two, three jobs. But we can't romanticize this culture in the way that it is being romanticized. I mean, what is life if you can't sit and enjoy some time with your family and Mm -hmm. your friends? You know, it's. Really, we're just all, we spend so many hours a day working, um, doing things that we don't enjoy just so we can survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think young people especially, I mean, are starting to realize that, damn, it's, you don't hate Mondays, you hate capitalism. Mm-hmm. You don't hate your job. I mean, maybe you do. <laughs> <laughs> you hate capitalism in the way that the system is set up, right? And so... I think people are coming more into consciousness as well that like, yeah, hustle culture can't be it. There has to be something different. There has to be something better. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, so many young people come in. uh, Well, I I don't know if so many is the right way of characterizing it, but a lot of people I know who have a passion for something and then they do it as a job and they're like, wow, I hate this now. Right. And it's not because they actually hate the, the thing inherently that they're doing. It's because... Who supervises them doing it doesn't care about their passion. They care about how much their passion puts money in their pockets. Right. And so it's about profit that they don't like their job. It's not about not being productive or something like that, which is what I think. Uh, in a, and it's also not a generational thing where it's like old people don't understand. It's mm-hmm. people who are of the old generation and are very wealthy write these articles about how young people don't want to work. Um, And on the flip side of hustle culture, there is some young, some young people who respond and say, well, yeah, you're right. We don't want to work. And uh, we should, we should uh, oppose hustle culture and pursue our passions. And it's like, well, that also doesn't work. Like we don't want to live a life of, and, and romanticize a life of working two, three jobs and being like, frankly, crippled when we're 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on the other hand, for so many people, it's become a necessity because one job isn't enough. And mm-hmm. Two jobs aren't enough. You need a third job to really to uh, to get by. And so now there's an alternative being presented. Mm-hmm. Um, for so long, it's uh, if people don't feel like there's a path that's viable to change their situation, then they will do the things that... Um, that they feel like are required to survive, like getting multiple jobs. Um, And in some cases that's, you know, will, will continue to be the case uh, just by the nature of society. And and the fact that companies main priority is money, not our workers being treated well. Do they have healthcare? Can they raise a family? Can they have a home? Mm -hmm. That's not in their calculation. But now I think, especially in 2023, the statistic is outstanding. I mean, really, it's insane. 88%. You think about all these people who are entering the workforce. Um, they're not only pro-union, but the majority of them, there's this Pew Research poll that showed that a majority of young people feel like young people can change society. Hell yeah. Which is also, I think, a significant uh, a significant statistic. Mm-hmm. And hope is crucial. If you don't have hope, you're not going to do shit. Right. Even if you think something's an issue, if you don't feel like it can actually change, why am I going to put, why am I going to take any risk to actually change it? Because then, you know, as the saying goes, for people who are fearful, they're going to be like, well, it could get worse. Mm-hmm. So people realize their condition's bad. They're hopeful that it can change. And they are starting to realize it can change in a particular type of way, which I think explains the statistic mm-hmm. of record popularity in unions. And that is that if we band together and get organized, we can beat the most rich and powerful people in this country who we hold responsible for the problems we face, for inflation, for the lack of, of stability in our lives, to not get a home, to raise a family, to, to put food on the table. 
Um, and that's what they associate unions with. Mm-hmm. The institution that young people associate, uh, the institution that young people see as fighting the people that they hold responsible for their problems are unions. Yep. They don't see it as the univer- the, the liberal university institution, a think tank, a nonprofit. They see unions as mm-hmm. the institution that's uh, not only fighting the people that are responsible for just the terrible state of society and a lack of a future, but they see unions winning. And what is a union other than a group of workers taking action together? Right. I think that's that's so key. And I want to go back to something you said earlier about how people are transformed. I mean, you can tell people these things, but it's when people see them straight in their face, they experience them is when people are most transformed to do whatever, whether it's, you know, go try a type of food or whatever, or it's to take action on something. Um, I just want to read this this quick little stat. Yeah. In 1965. CEO pay was 20 times what the average worker made in 1965. In the 90s, CEO pay was 60 times what the average worker made. And now, today, can you even guess? Yeah, do a quick guess how much you think CEO pay is. 250? It's 300 times what the average worker makes today. Inequality is deepening so much. I mean, I don't know if y'all seen the price of eggs It's so disrespectful every time I go to the grocery store. And I think in terms of people being transformed, we cannot understate how impactful the pandemic has been Mm -hmm. on especially young people's consciousness. I mean, just everyone's consciousness, to be honest. But in the pandemic, people were losing their jobs in the hundreds of thousands. People who make the companies run, people who do all the necessary labor to make uh, the, the whole country run were being laid off. Yeah. Meanwhile, CEO pay was still going up. Yeah. How, like, how does that even... Well, they were really struggling, so... <laughs> right. I mean, shoot. It's like... It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. No, exactly. I think it's... There, there are these moments in history where there are these crises that make people realize the way things have been and functioned can't function in the same way moving forward. I think Mm -hmm. the pandemic was one of those moments uh, shortly after the pandemic, which started, what, March 2020? Mm -hmm. Which honestly feels like 10 years ago. Right. It feels like so much has happened since March of 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's been just over three wars. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Billions of dollars to to, to funds, you know, the most... (laughs) The most terrible things across the world, um, but can't cancel student loan debt. But just shortly after, I think it was March, April, like in, within, in May, in end May, of May, June. And, and George Floyd was killed mm-hmm. by the Minneapolis police. And over 30 million people took to the streets in the largest protest movement in this country's history. Right. We were side by side. We in were the side by side saying? in Boston. I mean, it was almost every day, every two days, like... Anyone could call for any protest relating to the fight against police brutality and against racism, and thousands of people would be in the streets in Boston. And, of course, really every major city, but also small towns across the country. Um, And that had a huge impact on people's consciousness and their political ideas, things that were thought to be impossible and, and sort of fringe and, and radical ideas now entered the mainstream around mm-hmm. the nature of the police, the, the, the whole setup of the system that nurtured this kind of um, anti-system attitude. Mm-hmm. And, and by anti-system attitude, it, really what it boiled down to was the fact that there was there a small group of people who have all this money and who have all this power who don't really do all that much and there are all these people who are the vast majority of society who are getting beaten down oppressed overworked underpaid and that certainly had a lot to do with the the rise in popularity of unions too right and i think I mean, that anti-system attitude, I think, also kind of directed into an anti-capitalism attitude as well, right? Like, people were conflating all of the realities of corporate greed with 
the system that we we live under capitalism and i also think you know at the same time we had the rise of in in mainstream politics actually uh popular figures uh who promoted a, a socialist platform like bernie sanders you know what have you um and so we see the majority of young people under 30 actually having a positive view of of socialism and i think um what as you mentioned earlier what we're seeing right now is the main organ that is 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 fighting in in a more people-centered direction, right? Uh, fighting against this corporate greed, fighting against these really harsh realities that we're all struggling with is unions. And so it, it it's no surprise to me that yeah. unions are cool, unions are in. And I think it's a really important opportunity for the labor movement um, at large, which I think historically has been ca- characterized by insular like politics in terms of just fighting for xyz things on the job um but especially by older folks too uh to now being something that is this is actually a fight for our lives that's you right. know it's a fight beyond just the workplace it's a fight for a better society where people can can live a life with dignity you know in in all aspects yeah i think that's so well said because the the young people under the age of 30 they're they're pro-union in record numbers over that of any other age range. But as far as union density, they're the lowest. Mm -hmm. And so for the labor movement, it's this massive opportunity of, okay, like for every nine and 10 young people who are entering the workforce or new, really anyone who's entering the workforce, they're pro-union. That doesn't always translate to organization though, because the, the legal regime and labor law in this country is so right-wing, yeah. is so right-wing, so brutal. I think uh, it's the EPI reported that in, and this is a totally underreported number, um, because not in every case that an employer violates federal labor law, sometimes it, the, the, a campaign crumbles and they don't file an unfair labor practice mm. or report it or anything like that. But of the reported ones, 42% of Organizing campaigns in forty-two percent of organizing campaigns, employers violate federal labor law. I believe so it's, it. <laughs> there's, in, you know, it's one thing to mention in a poll, yeah, like I approve of unions, I support unions, which I think is super significant. I don't want to underplay it for all the reasons we've been talking about. It's another thing to actually be face to face with the fear of being fired, your entire livelihood on the line, and being like, nope, I'm going to sign that union card. Yep, I'm going to take my picture and put it on the public petition. Uh, yep, I'm going to go on strike. And, and going on strike is a real sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm going to get paid way less, maybe a fourth or a fifth less a week than what I would usually make. But I know it's worth it because I'm doing it with all my other coworkers. And I know the pain that we're inflicting on the company is going to be far more than the pain that I'm absorbing uh, with my coworkers. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. for our future. Um, but that's the thing that the labor movement needs to bring, right? Like it's it's the, the sort of... Um, the, the sort of picture people had of the labor movement, I would say even 10 years ago, is like, I, I even thought this until I met a union worker who was a dining hall worker who was a young, young black and Latino workers at the mm-hmm. university I went to. Um, but the picture people often had was, and, and I had was like a, a, a older white dude factory worker. Literally. That's not the, the way the labor movement is seen now, especially not amongst young people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it needs to be translated into organization. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, that's the opportunity the labor movement has. And as we said uh, earlier on the show when we were talking to Richard, that the 2023 can be the start of a new era for the labor movement and young people have a massive role to play in it. But their political aspirations, given that they've gone through these sets of experiences that you outlined, go far beyond just wages and benefits. Right. One thing is clear for 2024, though, it's that workers are standing up because we are sick and tired of being sick and tired. It's true. Corporate greed, count your days. Because the pizza parties, the company shirts, all these little trinkets that they try to give instead of real wages and benefits aren't going to work anymore. They're not going to work. People are tired of that shitty old pizza. Right, right. So I'm really excited to see what's going to come in 2024 because the people are standing up and 
doing the thing. Hussein, what what can we expect out of 2024? You know, it's our it's only our second episode of the show and also the last episode of the year. So I think we should absolutely talk about what to expect. I mean, one thing about the labor movement, to some degree, there's predictability in a way that other struggles are are hard to. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't you can't predict when 30 million people are going to enter the streets and mark the largest protest movement in U.S. history. Right. You can, though, know when a contract will expire, and so I think we should get into uh, some of those fights. But even beyond contracts, we know that the UAW launched a massive new organizing push. Right. At not over 13, exact, exactly 13 non-union auto companies. Most of those Love are concentrated in the South. Yeah. The South has got something to say. The South has got something to say. Union density is very low, obviously connected to just a racist legacy of Jim Crow and, and slavery. Um, it's no it's no coincidence that that labor is weaker there. Mm-hmm. But the UAW is coming for the South. The labor movement should as well, the entire labor movement. Um, at all these massive auto plants. Mm-hmm. And so there's that drive that I would imagine will enter more of a full swing. There are also major fights uh, of union workers, hotel workers uh, with Unite here. This summer and fall, thousands of hotel workers will be negotiating new contracts with hotel operators like Marriott, Hilton, and Hyatt um, in cities like Boston, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Boston, yep, Boston's in there, uh, and Hawaii. We got to be there. We we definitely got to be there, Boston and Hawaii. Right. Um. And, of course, their their Unite Here members, they also struck Marriott hotels in a number of cities in 2018 in one big. I remember that. Yep. We were we there. Were, we were there on the picket line in 2018. <laughs> Didn't have the show, but right. in 2024, when we're out on the picket line, we're yes. definitely going to... Get gonna ready produce. for that content, everybody. That's right. Yeah, exactly. We're going to get some good coverage. Um, it was one of the first um, major post-pandemic labor struggles in the hotel industry because it was decimated mm. by the pandemic. So many... I think like nearly over 90% of Unite Here members were were laid off uh, and they've rebuilt their union and, and waged fights to do so. And now they're entering a, a really crucial contract fight. In education, the Chicago Teachers Union, which is made up of 25,000 members, the Boston Teachers Union with 10,000 members. Wow, Boston's on the map. Boston is on the map. All yeah, right. Labor City. Uh, <laughs> Um, they're waging massive contract fights. Teachers have for many years been at the forefront of the labor movement. We interviewed Natalie from yes. UESF uh, on our first show and and are very eager to have more teachers on as uh, yes. Chicago. We love teachers. We do love teachers. They, I think you mentioned it best. They really help run society. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> um, but Chicago, Boston, and beyond in education – that's going to be huge. One fight I think that I think is just important to mention is dock workers. Right. Talk about rail workers. Dock workers have also an enormous amount of power and not mm-hmm. just shutting down, you know, a certain industry, but the entire national economy. Right. And dock workers on the East Coast are organized with the International Longshoremen's Association. Their contract expires on September 30th, 2024. And the president in a July convention earlier this year said, members should prepare to strike. Okay. Um, And so October 2024 is shaping up to be a major one uh, for workers across the country, particularly on East Coast docks. Okay. Yeah. I said the pizza parties and the company shirts aren't going to cut it it anymore. It's not going to do it. And there's 70,000, just over 70,000 dock workers represented by the ILA. Major issues, not dissimilar to to SAG-AFTRA around automation on the docks. And the guarantee that new terminals that are being created will have all union labor. Mm. There are already fights that have been waged around those same lines this year in North Charleston. The um, the This dock is the uh, Hugh Leatherman terminal, mm. um, this $1 billion terminal in South Carolina. So a major fight on the docks uh, could be a huge flashpoint in the labor movement and in the class struggle across the country in general. I think it's worth noting how disproportionately, or at least some of the things we just mentioned around UAW, the ILA, so many of these fights are happening in the South. 
right. in, in 2024. Um, in fact, South Carolina might be at the center of some of the, the largest labor fights. South Carolina is the state with the lowest union density in the country. Oh, wow. 1.7%. Uh, in fact, 34,000, only 34,000 workers in South Carolina are part, are part of unions. And if the UAW succeeds in organizing the 11,000 workers at the BMW Spartanburg plant in South Carolina, it would increase union density from where it is now by 24%. Wow. It's, That's crazy. It is, it is truly crazy. Organize the South. Organize the South, the, the Southern key, so to speak. Right. Um, but it's, I think it speaks to this general trend of that there's the, the real, the more the 90% who are unorganized are organized, the more militant fights you can wage, mm-hmm. right? Because you can wage fights against a company as union workers, but at the end of the day, in the society that we live in, those companies are competing against each other to drive wages down, to reduce costs, to produce more for less. Mm-hmm. And so if Amazon is organized by the Teamsters, just imagine the types of fights they can wage not only against UPS, but UPS and Amazon and the entire industry mm-hmm. uh, and the billionaires that run it. So. Um, shaping up to be a big one in 2024. I don't want to meander. There's so much to say. Yeah, I love to see it. I hope y'all are all as excited for the new year, for what's to come in 2024 as we are on the line. Well, that's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of On The Line. Make sure you like, share, and follow us at Labor On The Line on all streaming and social media platforms. And as always, whether we're on the assembly line, on the phone line, or on the picket line, you'll always find us on the line. We'll see y'all in the new year.